welcome to Less Than or Equal, the podcast about pursuing equality and geekdom by celebrating the diverse in their accomplishments. I'm your host, Aline Sims, and today I am happy to be joined by Stephanie Mario. Stephanie, welcome. Hi. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm great. So Stephanie, who are you? Who am I? Wow. Um, I would say that the first thing that I say about myself is um, I'm a writer and I'm a musician who just ended up in technology. Um, I'm a lot of things. It depends on the day and depends on what I'm doing. Um, I found myself uh, coding and then teaching and then in marketing and um, now doing copywriting and doing advocacy, tech advocacy, which is really interesting. Um, So really, it just depends on the time of day and uh, the week and what's going on in my life. And what way the wind's blowing. Basically, yeah. Yeah. So I found out about you on Twitter because um, of your advocacy work, especially for women of color in tech, um, kind of through Karanda Adair and Ash Dryden. Um, And then I was like, oh, this person is super interesting and has a lot of really nice things to say, really, really neat things to say. I've got to get you on the show. So here you are. And I'm so happy. I'm happy too. Yay. (laughs) So how did you get started or why did you get started as being a vocal um, advocate for women of color, especially on Twitter? Yeah, um, I have only been I've been on Twitter for about five years. And I would say that the first three years I used it mostly as a way of getting um, my news fix and staying on top of current events and then. About two years in, I launched a music career and I knew that, you know, going on social media was really important for building up a brand. But I didn't actually start doing advocacy work or even seeing it from even seeing the tool from a social justice angle until about 2013 when I happened upon Mickey Kendall's um, Solidarities for White Women hashtag. And um, that was really the first time that I had um, participated, used Twitter as a forum um, to really discuss issues that uh, were very important to me. I never really thought that it was the the kind of place that could foster that kind of conversation. Um, but I was still treating, at that time, I was still treating kind of my, my, my social media presence and my social justice work apart from my tech work. And I would say it wasn't until about August of last year, about August of 2014, after going to my first conference, that I really um, saw myself in technology and then realized that, you know what, it's actually okay for me to start talking about these issues. Maybe a little bit before then, I think it was March of 2014 that I published my first piece in Model View Culture around tech and underserved communities. Um, just because I, I I live in a low-income neighborhood, I'm from the Bronx, I, I'm living currently about three blocks away from where I grew up, but I, I straddle two worlds. Every day I go into work in an office um, in a professional environment, which is really out of reach for a lot of native New Yorkers, a lot of low income people of color. And it wasn't lost upon me that when I started my last job, which was at a startup, um, the only other women of color in the beginning were the the cleaning staff. And those were the people that I bonded with over other coworkers because we had similar experiences, even though my education and certainly my, my occupation set me apart from them. Um, so it's this constant struggle of having to uh, basically it's this struggle of having to strike a balance between who I am and then who I need to present myself to be in an, in a professional environment, because I've never felt that I could just be myself and be accepted for being myself in a professional environment. I think people tend to to see that as me saying, oh, I don't I don't want to be professional um, or, you know, I just I want to go in casual the way I would talk to my friends. No, not really. It's more like having to go in and not feel that you're the only person of a certain community uh, to be there, you know, at at the office or, you know, feeling like you can't participate in certain jokes because you didn't grow up with certain bands or certain TV shows or um, understand references or like, you know, you didn't go to summer camp or things like that. Like, like things that people assume are the common American experience. A lot of that was not a part of my experience growing up. And um, I felt that, 
it, it, it was very isolating for me. And I felt that um, it was very difficult to find other women of color and going to conferences, which was something that I started doing a lot of, a lot after August of last year, I noticed that while um, organizers were really keen on, on improving diversity or proving, improving numbers, there were few people of color in general, you know, regardless of gender, but certainly women of color, I was maybe one or one of two or one of three. Um, so I, I always found it to be a lip service when people would applaud the numbers of women in the room when very few of those women were actually women from intersectional backgrounds. So um, that that's really, it was just like having to see it and then feeling frustrated because there weren't, there weren't any forums online. There weren't many people talking about it. There was nobody that was calling out the elephant in the room. So um, it, it, I would just get frustrated to the point that I had to talk about it because no one else was. And I just didn't know how else to kind of, you know, get it out. So, yeah, if you don't talk about it, then what, you know, it just remains the elephant in the room. Yeah, absolutely. That's something that um, I've been very cognizant of. I, I myself am white um, mm-hmm. and I was fortunate enough to be awarded a scholarship to WWDC, which is um, Apple's big developer conference. And I went as we record this, I went last week and, you know, I, I, there's a lot of talk about women in tech right now. Right. But, you know, as, as has been I became aware that it's a white women in tech thing right yes. now um, because of Twitter, because I'm white, you know, I don't notice this. And then, you know, I have, I'm fortunate to have friends who are people of color who are like, Hey, Aline, like you notice that there are a lot of white women in the room, but there aren't people of color, like you were saying. So how can I, as a white woman who is trying to advocate for, you know, intersectional feminism, how can mm-hmm. I help women of color um, as I'm, you know, trying to help myself? Absolutely. I would I would start off by um, asking women of color to share their experiences. I would say that um, listening to women of color and uh, without any judgment and um, understanding what what, a per- you know, everybody, obviously, every, you know, women of color is a very, very broad, broad, you know, group. We're talking about um, many different uh, groups of women from different, you know, ethnic and racial backgrounds, all of whom don't have the same struggles. Asian American women, for example, their their struggles are not going to look the same as a black woman whose struggles are not necessarily going to look the same as a Latina woman. So it's very easy. So, you know, I think one thing is to to listen to someone's experience, but look at it um, very much as their individual experience. Ask them kind of what what their grievances are. Um, then I, really, I, I think it would it, it starts with conversation and seeing what people need. Well, do people need connections uh, to get jobs. Like are people getting passed over for, for great opportunities? Um, do you know anyone who would make a great speaker to, a, uh, at a conference? I think that's really important. Um, asking conference organizers if they have people of color, um, and, and just more than, than deferring to just Asian Americans, like, you know, do we have a, a wide range of people, um, represented here? Um, and, and then seeing, basically asking people what they need. I think that's the first step seeing what people need and, and giving them the space to tell you in their own words what their needs are, and then following through with any promise of support, um, you know, or, or you know, if you, if you can't give them exactly what they need, try to point them to the people that are able to. I think, I think that's really important. But um, definitely elevating the voices of women of color. So if you know that there are women in tech events, if you know that there are um, – Basically, anything that's women-centered or women-focused, making sure that women of color are, you know, adequately present, represented. Ask the organizers if they have anybody on the panel. And the same, I guess, would go for um, for for uh, for trans for trans women of color, trans women in general. Like, you know, obviously there are many different intersections mm-hmm. um, in the women category. So, yeah, that that would be a good place to start. I think asking lots of questions. It does my heart good to hear you say that, um, because while I was in San Francisco, I also gave a talk on like helping marginalized people. And one of my major points was listen to them and believe them. Like, yes, that's that's one of the fundamental steps. Like after realizing that you have privilege and and, like learning how to check your privilege, one of the first things you have to do is listen to and believe marginalized people. I I firmly agree. I think that. um... I don't know if it's just that people don't if people don't think that that's the natural first step, because I think when people think of helping, 
they think of like automatically jumping onto something and, you know, providing resources or, you know, being a mentor or, you know, sponsoring someone to go to a conference or, or to a boot camp or whatever, which is awesome is a great first step. But I think me, some people need their stories to be heard. I think people need to know that a lot of what is happening to them within the tech industry is not an isolated thing. It's not something that is all in their head. And giving people the space to be able to talk about it validates the fact that what they are going through is something that in many cases is more than just than just you know it, about them. It's it's not something that's necessarily personal, but it becomes personal because you know of of an identity. Um, and, and the way people react to your identity. So, yeah, I think listening is and listening without any judgment um, and, and learning, I think, how to basically while you listen, learning how to kind of um, handle your own feelings of discomfort, because it's very easy when when someone who is privileged. And I would say personally that I'm very that I'm privileged over, and I say this a lot, I'm privileged over LGBTQ individuals who have to confront um, issues and assumptions about their gender identity or their sexual orientation. So in that sense, you know, listening to someone who um, you have, you exert some sort of privilege over and then learning how to, learning how to, to live with that discomfort, which is okay to feel while also validating their, their story and their experience. Do you think that tech is becoming better for women of color? Not really. Okay. Um, I, I, I don't think that tech is being, is, I, I actually don't. Um, it, it's funny, before I started, before I went into the tech industry, I was working in corporate and I saw much more diversity in the corporate environment than I did in the tech, in the tech industry. Um, and a lot of the women of color that I saw in the corporate world were also doing like a variety of tasks. There were some of us that were administrative operations. Um, I was in the communications department. We didn't have many executive level staff, certainly that were women of color in that department. We were cer certainly lacking, but it was much easier to connect with women of color in tech. It's very difficult to find another woman of color um, unless you're going to be in a non-technical or administrative role. And even then there may be few. Um, so I think we have a really long way to go with women of color. And I think part of the reason is that women of color, the numbers we, we get, I, I feel like we get erased in the numbers. So anytime we talk about women in tech and we talk about all these percentages and, you know, 20% of engineers or blah, blah, blah or we talk about people of color, which I find that the numbers for people of color are less reliable than the numbers for women in tech, surprisingly enough. Um, you just don't know what, what, what it breaks down to. How many percent of, you know, what percentage of the women engineers are white? What percentage are Asian? What percentage are black? What percent, you know, percentage are Latino or, or mixed race, or even, even, even worse, I would say in terms of reporting, our Native women, very, there are no mm -hmm. numbers that I've been able to find for Native women in the industry. So what ends up happening is that we get lumped into these larger categories without any consideration as to how the intersection of race and gender apply to our participation in the industry, which is a huge problem. So like, I'll hear numbers about how, you know, how many cents to the dollar a woman makes, you know, to, to, to a white man's dollar, and when you break that down even further, you find that Latinas are making something like 56 cents to a white man's dollar, putting us at the very bottom of the heap. And these are conversations that are getting lost. And I think that um, I don't know if it's because people don't know how to approach this issue. But I think if we're going to talk about women, women of color are a part of the women experience. And as such, we need to be included. I'll, t I'll give you an example um, of a space that I found to be very inclusive in that sense. Um, I went to a conference, a women's only software engineering conference um, in March called Write, Speak, Code. And they had scholarships and they had, and they, they, they broke it down. They had scholarships for, you know, individuals that ident identified as LGBTQ. They had a woman of color scholarship and they had like, you know, socioeconomic scholarship, et cetera, et cetera. Understanding that there were intersections that, um, might that that would be missed if they just had one general scholarship category you know for any woman who wanted to apply um and i and i called that out specifically because they understand 
that, you know, saying that we have a scholarship for women is not enough when all women don't have access, equal access to, you know, the very bit of the tech industry that we already have. Like, you know, women of color have a, a much smaller piece of the pie than white women um, or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So, so yeah, so I think that's important. Yep. And um, yes, <laughs> I'm, I'm over here <laughs> nodding and I'm realizing that people can't, can't understand that. Like, why is Elaine quiet? Because she's nodding vigorously. I, I, it's super, super, super important. It's um, I'm, I'm so glad that, you know, I think that over the last 12 months, especially the, the quote women in tech issue has become um, talked about more and more and more. Mm-hmm. I think that's yeah. super important. I think that we're pushing, you know, we're pushing that. Um, and, and now we've got to correct for the misstep, which is, you know, it's become a white woman in tech thing. And that's, yeah. that's, that's not, that's not what we need. We need all women elevated. Um, one point in my talk is like all of these diverse backgrounds, like you were talking about, you know, maybe not understanding some of the pop culture references that people were making because, you know, your culture in uh, the Bronx is different than the culture in Manhattan at the time or, you know, wherever right. other people grew up, you know, that that brings a diversity in thought and experience and and innovation that, you know, we're seriously lacking at this point in time. Right. Right. I agree with you. Um, and uh, I, I find that, you know, even even men of color, I mean, and I've seen this too online, men of color also feel that the focus on um, on women is also detracting from that issue. So I think it's like it's very important for for us to see, like in our diversity efforts, who is getting left out Um it's very easy to just say, Hey, diversity, if you consider yourself a marginalized person, like apply here and assume that somebody would say, you know, I, I self-identify as, as someone from an underrepresented group. So I'm going to apply. And I think the, the assumption is that, you know, people, we don't need to call out every group because people are just going to self-select in and we're going to get, you know, as much people from whichever group in there, but we don't, but I think there's something there's something comforting about seeing a particular group called out because not because you want to draw. I mean, I think people are afraid of using, you know, the wrong language, the wrong terminology, which I think is totally fair. Um, and I understand that fear. But it's more like when you are a person from a marginalized group and you see your group being mentioned, there is something there's something that feels good about it. There's something like, wow, OK. Um, somebody, this is a space that is very, very safe for me. I mean, I'll give you a case in point. So I, I run a Twitter chat called WOC in, in tech, women of color in tech. Um, and I, in the beginning, I was using, um, terms like, you know, all women of color, including trans women of color, because I wanted, you know, women that were, that were transgender who were women of color to feel like, you know what, this is a safe space for me. I didn't want it to be assumed that it was a cisgender space. But then I had other community members who, you know, rightly pointed out that, well, you know, what about those of us that are non-binary people of color who, you know, we don't, we don't identify as women, but we feel basically they, they feel that there's something in the space that resonates with them. Mm -hmm. And I tried, and basically I asked them, okay, cool. What kind of language, you know, would you, would you want in the beginning, somebody suggested femme of color. And yesterday, somebody said, actually, you know, how about just saying non-binary? So I said, okay, cool. Non-binary people of color. Awesome. Basically trying to make, trying to account for the different intersections um, of, of the women of color group and, and people who, while not identifying as women per se, still felt that there was something in the group that they could, um, that would speak to their experience. So um, yeah, I think, you know, even if as an organizer or as a hiring manager or whatever, you might not think it important or you might think it annoying or whatever, but it might actually be the thing that prompts someone to participate in whatever you're, you're doing. And you listened. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it all goes back to listening. Yeah. I, I mean, absolutely. The, the last thing, I mean, of course, like for me, the, what I want like for me, the premise of, of this chat is to be a, a supportive space, a space where people feel that they 
they have others out there that cannot just share their experiences as being, you know, women, women of color or non-binary people of color, but also that they are going to be respected. So for me, part of creating that safe, supportive and positive space that I really want this chat to be, I want it to be an empowering space, is to make sure that all of the members of the chat feel empowered. Um, so, you know, even if, if I'm like, well, you know, I don't, I don't really see what the difference is between two terms. Well, if somebody from that group is telling me that one term is better to, be, to use over another because of X, Y, Z, I'm going to take their word for it because that's a lived experience. It's not an experience that I can speak to. So um, I, I, I feel that it would just be, it would be counter to everything that I stand for. If I advocate for listening to people, for validating their lived experience, um, it also means that I have to hold myself accountable to those standards. I can't just expect it from other people and not um, expect the same of myself. So I love it. Thanks. So will you tell everybody a little bit more about the, uh, what the WOC in tech um, hashtag is about? Yeah, so um, the WOC in tech hashtag, it, it's a hashtag that has been around for a while, but it's not, it's not been in use. Basically, I, I selected the hashtag because it hadn't been used much, but it was easily, it was easily something you could easily remember. And also, you know, less than 10 characters, which I found important. But the, the WOC in tech chat was just an idea that I had. Um, and I and I talked to my friend Christina Morillo, who um, is also a woman of color in tech, who is you know big in advocacy, and she does a lot of volunteer work for Code Newbie for Black Girls Code. And I asked her if she wanted to participate. She said, "Yeah." It was basically I just wanted to see who else was out there. It was just like a way of getting together and chatting about stuff. And um, I had no idea if anybody was going to show up. I had no idea if anybody had read the tweets that I had been tweeting about this chat. Um, really didn't go with many expectations. Just had like a, a list of like eight or nine questions that um, Christina and I thought would be interesting to ask the first time. And a lot of people showed up to the first one, a lot more than than I had anticipated. I think it may have been somewhere like, I don't know, like, for me, which was a lot, like maybe anywhere between like 20 to, to 40 people at any given time um, chatting or participating in the chat. And really, it's a place where we can talk about um, things that people talk about in tech, you know, technical projects, um, workplace environment. There are things that I want to talk about um, later on, like, you know, ageism in tech, um, you know, motherhood in tech, like all kinds of all kinds of subjects. But I really wanted to see who these who these women were, you know, and what women of color in the tech industry were doing, because the numbers were not giving me any information. Um, I wanted to know how many of us were software engineers, how many of us were non-technical. Um, and and it it became something really, really awesome. And since then, I think it's it's what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to let companies know that if they're really, really interested in diverse talent and they really need, they, that this is a place that they should go because all of the women that were present in the chat that have been present in the chat for the last two that we have moderated are all experts in their field. They all have experience. Um, they, and they have every, and very diverse experiences. We have DevOps people, we have you know, iOS and Android engineers, uh, we have IT specialists, we have copywriters, um, people that work corporate enterprise and startup environments, um, people who are and lots of freelancers as well, people that would be great additions to any company. Um, and I and that was something else that I wanted it to be. Um, I managed to to find a job this year. So I'm starting a new gig in about a week and a half. I'm going to Digital Ocean. And one thing that I really wanted to do was to make other women of color in the industry empowered to find jobs that they really wanted. So the job component is something that is uh, very important in the chat um, and something that I think a lot of women find um, that's very beneficial, that's very helpful to them. So, you know, we've asked companies, hey, you know, if you want us to uh, shout you out in the chat, if you have any job postings, why don't you email us? We don't charge. We're just like, hey, like email me. We'll create a Trello card for it, which is what Christine and I do to create Twitter copy, and we'll tweet it in the next chat. Um, and that's basically what's been going on. So just finding the, the, the things, there are a lot of common threads. A lot of women really want 
networking opportunities, mentorship opportunities. They want new jobs. They want to meet friends in new cities. There are a lot of a lot of women that are that are moving. And that's something else. The, the reason that it's online, that it's on social media is because it transcends any kind of border, which I think is important. I live in New York City and in New York City, I have trouble meeting other women of color in yeah. tech. So I can imagine women of color who live in smaller metropolitan areas, um, rural areas, suburban areas who don't have um, many communities to tap into. So, so yeah. I think that's so cool. You know, I've, um, I didn't read last week's, but I, the first one you did, I, I was reading through just because I think that, you know, it, that listening component, right? Like right. exposing myself to diverse voices and just listening and not saying anything. But I noticed a lot of, of what you're talking about, a lot of, um, you know, that, that making connections. And I saw, you know, women saying, Hey, you know, women of color, I want more women of color where I work, we're hiring here, you know, let me know if you want more info. And, um, and I thought that was a really, really neat thing to see, especially for the first time you did it as like an organized thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, we want to, we want more diversity in our offices. We want people to, look at us as professionals. And also I really, I, I find that um, hiring managers, uh, organizers of, of events in the industry and stuff, like I get it, it's very difficult to always find these people, but I, I wanted once and for all to take that excuse away from hiring managers and other people in the industry that are decision makers because it's easy to hear, well, you know what? We just can't find these people. There, there's no one that's interested. No one has reached out to us. And I'm kind of like, well, how hard have you tried? Because on Twitter with, you know, I don't have like 10,000, I don't have 500,000 followers. I was still able to organize a chat and find more women of color with technical experience than a lot of these companies are saying that they've been able to find in any of their, you know, in any of their like hiring cycles or whatever. So um, I think we recognize not only it, it, not only is it important to have diversity in the offices, but frankly, we want more people that, that, um, that are, are like us in, in the fact that they are women of color, whatever that may be. There's something very comforting. There's something very uh, reinforcing about having people that, that can understand certain elements of your experience that you work with because again, like everything isn't always professional in a, in a, in an office, you have downtime, you have casual time with your coworkers and all of these things that we were alluding to pop cultural references, um, you know, class experiences, all of these things are taken for granted. And it's believed that, you know, anyone that comes into this office, you know, is, is a part of that kind of, you know, that kind of culture that has that kind of background. And for us, for, for those of us who do not share those same um, cultural backgrounds, it can be very isolating and it can almost seem to, and, and I've seen this, you know, it, it seems this way to other coworkers, almost like you're not interested in getting, you know, in being a part of the culture. You're not interested in getting to know your coworkers when it's really not just that. It's like, you're tired of being the only person like you in the office and you're tired of having people make all of these assumptions that you can't partake in. Um, and it, it's very infuriating. I mean, there, there were times that like, you know, I'd have casual chat with my coworkers and things would be assumed like, yeah, all parents, you know, all of our parents have property. All of our parents have a huge nest egg and have financial advisors. And I remember texting a friend of mine and being like, yo, this is insane. Like, um, you know, my, my, my parents, like my, and I grew up with my father, like is barely making it by, um, you know, on my poultry salary at one point, I was sending my father money to make sure that he was okay. Cause for me, he's my dad, he's made huge sacrifices. So that's nothing to me, but you know, you hear these things and, and you almost feel, you're almost made to feel like, wow, like you're really not a part of this. Um, so I think it's necessary for, for not just the, 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 the company, but I think it's necessary um, for other women of color, um, other underrepresented people to feel like the environment is, not, is, is supportive of them. Like inclusion has to be more than just hiring one or two women of color. That's not enough. It has to be like 
it has to be simple that people are really genuinely open to new ideas and new experiences. Um, and they don't make the assumptions that, that everybody, you know, is into the same exact thing as they are. So what about these companies that are predominantly white and wanting to diversify and looking to hire like a person to fill a role? And it, it, it's like the first person of color who comes in. How can they work to make things better for a person until they can further diversify their workforce? Yeah, I would say the first thing that they need to do is they need to be very clear with these uh, potential new hires about their diversity situation. Um, I asked for the first time in my life, I'm 29, the first time in my career, it wasn't until I took um, the job that I'm starting in, in about two weeks, that, I, that it occurred to me to ask about diversity and diversity efforts. So um, one thing is, if you're a person of color looking for a job, and if diversity is important to you, I'm not going to say it's, it's you know, on everyone's list of priorities, but if you are the kind of person that does not want to be the the token person of mm -hmm. color in the company, then I think it would be important for you to ask, not just to, not just to see what the answer is that you're going to get, but to gauge the response. Because if the, if the interviewer is not comfortable with that question, if they skirt around their question, if they look really uncomfortable, that says volumes to me. But if they're like, you know what, we could do a lot better and we're really trying and, you know, you know, we're trying to do X, Y, Z, you know, these are some of the things that we're trying to work on, but yes, it is something that's a value to us. Another thing I would say is ensuring that employees get diversity training. And, and by, and I mean, hire a diversity consultant who has worked, who has worked, um, who has done client work in companies such similar to your own companies that um, are trying to have more diversity initiatives or hire um, people from diverse backgrounds to give a thorough training to the people in the office because it's very easy to be really, you know, enthused in the beginning, but um, microaggressions are a real thing. Unconscious bias is a real thing. And the very least is getting people used to um, used to, to, to seeing that and identifying that in their own behavior. Um, not so much to, to call out the, the, the new hire, but so much so that people can recognize those patterns in themselves. And I mean, preferably, I would say if you're going to hire a person of color, I would hope that you have more positions open and that you're actively seeking other um, people of color to fill those roles. Because, again, it can be very, very isolating. Um, and also, as, as the only person of color, sometimes you feel like, oh, I have to speak for my entire community now. Like I have to speak for all ethnic minorities in America just because I work, you know, in John, you know, John Schmoe's startup and I'm the only person of color there. So, so yeah, I, I think it's, it's a, it's a multi, it's definitely like a multi-step effort, but um, it's something that requires buy-in from everyone. Everyone should be trained. Everyone should understand what's going on. Um, and I think people need to be very clear with uh, people of color that are applying to the job about what it is that, you know, what, what, where the company is now and where they want to go and, be serious about making sure that they are actively looking for more diverse um, applicants. And I think that's the hard part, right? Like you can say, I want more diversity, but if you're not willing to like actually make it a safe place for more diverse people and you're not willing to follow through and like reprimand employees for right microaggressions and poor behavior you know like I think people are like oh yeah diversity is great and then they realize that like it entails a lot of work too but it's important work absolutely um I think it, it is important work it's work that is more than just you know diversity is important because diversity is important and it's because it just makes common sense I mean look at the world that we live in today Look at markets that we are not tapping into, markets that have a huge need for certain products and services, et cetera, products that the, the market reacts a certain way to because it didn't, it didn't fill their needs. I mean, I think about something like Twitter as an example, because Twitter's investors definitely want something different than a lot of um, marginalized people on Twitter who are using it as a platform for social activism and social justice. You know, the, the, the block feature or the fact that um, 
you know, this, uh, I forgot what it was. I think now you can, um, you can export your, the, the, the list of people that you have blocked and share that with other people. Well, that was something that developers created, you know, free, I think it's free beastie girl, um, blocked together. Like there are a few mm-hmm. folks that decided to create these, these features themselves because the Twitter wasn't providing that for people and Twitter got on the boat very, very late. Um, and you know, that's not just, and that's, and there's a whole issue of also not crediting people, but it's more like there's certain features that people really want from these products. But if you're not from those groups and you don't understand what those groups need, then you are going to be blind to those problems because you're not, you don't share that experience. And I think that's, that's the thing about a lot of products that I see in the market today, really, um, they fit the needs of a, of a, of a certain subset of human beings. And there are people from all kinds of backgrounds with different devices and technologies. Like we don't all have the latest iPhone or the latest Android with the latest OS. Um, none, and that's not to go, you know, that says nothing about internet broadband or access mm-hmm. or anything like that. So, you know, we make assumptions about who the market, like who, who our target users are and who the market is. And we're really not optimizing our products for um, different groups who might use them differently. And for that reason, diversity is needed because I personally, I, I, I'm a woman from the Bronx and I can't relate to the needs. You know, I can't relate to what... Um, I don't know, like a subsistence farmer is going to need, or, you know, someone that's working in a shop in, in Lagos, like that's not my experience. So those problems are going to be blind to me. But if we had someone, and if that was a market we wanted to tap into, it would only make sense to have people who could speak to that experience to make better, robust products. It, it sounds so simple when you say it, but over and over and over again, we see these, like we see missteps, you know, like, Mm-hmm. Uh, Lego. I I have a big beef with Lego. Anyone who knows me knows that, like, you know, they 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 started doing like the Lego Friends pink and purple sets, and like recently they had um, a, a Lego Friends set that's like an airplane, and the pilot is a male. And it's right. like why why what can you not can you hire me to come and tell you not to do stuff like this you know and and, and it's stuff that like Lego does over and over and over again and Twitter does this same stuff over and over and over again every company like unless you're actively working on solving the problem you're gonna mm-hmm. make those mistakes over and over and over again so just get people in there who can tell you when you're doing things wrong. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is where um, diversity consultants come in, which I think is, is something that we're starting to see, you know, especially in the tech industry. Like these are people who understand the issues and, but not just that they understand diversity as a business problem and know how to find and, and can help your company create solutions that make sense. I think if we treat diversity as like, as, as, you know, somebody who understands this as a business problem, as a, as a, as an expert, as opposed to like a nice to have, like, you know, if you're a diverse person, you know, diverse issues, I think then companies will start taking it seriously. One thing that I have particular issue with is um, employees of companies who are interested in diverse, in diversity and diversity issues be the ones that are called upon to create diversity initiatives at company, especially when they're not being compensated for it. So it's extra work on top of the work that you're doing. And not just that, like their diversity work is more than just like, you know what, diversity is bad. Like it's an actual problem. If we think about it, a problem, the way we think of, you know, an algorithm being the solution to a problem, the way we think, you know, computationally about problems um, as, you know, engineers or the way we think about problems as business people or, you know, product managers, if we think of diversity as a problem in that way, then we can't really expect people who don't fully understand, like, what the overall problem is, like, what the goal is of the company, et cetera, to be the ones leading these initiatives, especially when you're doing it for free, which I know a lot of companies would prefer to do, like, hey, yeah, why don't we just do something internally? Well, do we have somebody who has been trained to do this? Do we have somebody who has worked with companies um, or organizations around uh, diversity issues and creating robust diversity initiatives? 
So um, I think when, when businesses start seeing it as a problem from that, until businesses start seeing it from a problem, as a problem from that point of view, and then find people who are well-versed in policy and all kinds of things to kind of go in there and, and, and fix the problem, we're going to basically do what, what you're just describing now. It's going to be patchwork. You know, you, you ship a product and then somebody's like, oh my God, you didn't think to have a block feature or you didn't think that girls would want to be pilots. And then it's only until you have an uproar that you fix the problem. But the, but then you're just, you're, you're always putting out a fire. You're not anticipating the issues before you, um, you're not anticipating these, these problems and you're not creating solutions in anticipation of these problems rather. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. mean, it's a huge thing. I'm, I'm not going to say that it's like, it, it's not easy work. And I, and I don't think it's easy at all. I think it is very difficult from a personal standpoint, from a business standpoint, from a community standpoint, because there's a lot of you having to recognize that there are patterns in yourself that you have to learn how to undo um, and, and dismantle as well as like the overall social, like, you know, and social, like communal, meaning like your company, like these problems here that we have to uh, solve. So it's a lot of, it's a lot of internal and external work that has to be done, but it's work that's necessary if we're going to break out of the current pattern um, that we have in the industry and the way we treat um technology and the way we treat other people in general. We can't purport to be an industry that is going to save the world if we have way less than, 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 you know, if we have like 2% of the human beings in the world represented in the, in the people that make these products and in the people that we ultimately market these products to. Yeah. It's, it's necessary. It just, it just is. Yeah. Yeah. So Switching gears a little bit, you're going to be uh, giving some talks at some conferences coming up. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. Um, I'm going to be keynoting Open Source Bridge next week. Um, so next Thursday, I will be keynoting. Um, I am also speaking at AlterConf Portland on Saturday. I am going to be talking a little bit more about, about the issues that we discussed now, um, diversity um, initiatives in tech. And I'm talking at Burlington, um, Burlington RubyConf in August, basically trying to give people some actionable steps for, uh, you know, try, empowering the individual to, to be more inclusive and um, contribute to, to diversity initiatives. And I am going to be speaking at Madison Ruby at the end of August. Um, yeah, basically it's all around diversity. Um, my story and then kind of how I ended up where I ended up. Um, they're, they're all going to be slightly different, but yeah, that's the general theme. And it's, it's so needed. Yeah, it, it is. I mean, I, I, I struggle with it because I feel like man, nobody wants to hear this anymore because, you know, we talk about it all the time. And I feel like that's all I'm talking about on Twitter. So I'm like, I get sick of talking about it and I get sick of hearing it. So I feel like other people are, but then I'm reminded that, well, you know, there are a lot of people that haven't heard this before. There are a lot of people that haven't um, seen it from, from a certain perspective. And I think that, um, that, that ultimately helps me try to you know, overcome that, like, well, you know, are we kind of done talking about this? Because I don't think we should ever be done talking about this. I think that until we start seeing technology and society as one in the same and not as mutually exclusive, until we get to that point where we see that technology is the tool for human beings, then I think this conversation is going to continue. Um, so, yeah, so as long as, you know, we, we tend to separate these two, these two things and not see them as one and the same. I think that we're always going to talk about diversity. Well, yeah. And you know, it's, if, if we stop talking about it, then things are just going to revert back, right? Like we haven't gained enough momentum and enough ground on any of these fronts really that like, like I can be like, Oh yeah, we're safe. You know, it's, it's, yeah. th this will continue if people stop speaking. That's not the case. No, I hear that. Um, and I think what something that I that I've encountered a bit, like anytime I, I give a talk or just or just voice my opinion, people are kind of like, OK, well, then what's the solution to this? Like, well, there's it's there complicated. Isn't one. Yeah. There isn't one solution. It's not going to be just one simple answer. It's going to be different, you know, concerted efforts 
that ultimately get to this goal. Like, I think whether or not we find a solution, and I don't think thinking about it as like one solution is going to be helpful to anyone. Um, I think if, if we always think that like we have to get to the finish line, people aren't going to be prompted to start. And I think that um, having to do this work is, is having to, you, you're forcing yourself to get better as an individual and as a person. Um, and if, if you think about it from like that, like it, diversity as well as like your work, you know, your own personal road to self-actualization, these are works in progress. You improve upon it. You're way better than you are yesterday, but there will be kinks. Um, I'm sure, you know, even for anyone who is not a member of a marginalized group working in the workplace, there are still, you know, people have still have gripes. They still have issues. They still have concerns. Um, there's still things that we haven't properly dealt with, even for those people. So no one is problem free. But I think that that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be working towards, you know, the greater goal, which is, you know, awesome. People feel way more included. People, um, we have uh, uh, people from all, all, all backgrounds represented in some way, shape or form and that the products that we create um, basically appeal to, to a larger market. I mean, like if you think about all of the technology and the software that we currently have, which is a lot, right? We think about the last 50 years in technological advances and it is a lot. We have amassed a huge amount of knowledge. But when you think about it in terms of the fact that a sliver of the human population created this wealth of knowledge that we currently build all of our stuff on, imagine if we widened it and included way more people. Imagine how much bigger the knowledge that we have now would be. Um, imagine what kinds of technologies would be created that don't necessarily have to be used by people like you or me. I mm -hmm. mean, everything doesn't have to be about us, um, but people from different parts of the world, different backgrounds. Like, I think that's the important thing is, like, yeah, we have a huge wealth of knowledge that is tech right now. Not one person in the world possesses all of this knowledge. Now imagine if we can involve billions and billions of more people in, and, and, and imagine what we could create from there. So that's how I like to see it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, people, I, tr I try to make a business case for it. Like, it's just good business, right, to, to yeah. have diversity. Like, ethical, ethical considerations aside, because, you know, you get those those really, like, business-focused people who are like, I'm not in it for the ethics. It's like, okay, fine. Right. Like, you have untapped markets. Like, yes. flat out, you have untapped markets, and you can't even imagine, you can't even begin to conceive of what those are, just because you don't have that background. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I think about mobile banking on the African continent and how that has taken off, how people in, 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 on the African continent, like the, the most common form of cell phone that, you know, that, the, that the average person would have is, um, like a Nokia that we used like 10, 15, 20 years ago that can only text and call and how an entire industry around banking outside of financial institutions has been created on, on mobile phones. So people can create accounts on, um, via SMS. They go to a uh, mobile agents who will quote unquote top them up and they can transfer money to someone else via SMS. And that person will take their phone with their SMS to an agent and that, that agent will withdraw money, et cetera. And this is something that exists outside of a financial institution. Whereas for us, the equivalent of that solution is, you know, the Bank for America app. That's nice. But, you know, when we think about people in this country, the working poor, people who are low income, for whom the cost of uh, having a bank account is actually, um, it, 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 it's difficult because mm -hmm. you can't maintain a, a minimum balance or something. When, you know, we haven't created solutions for people like that, but on the African continent, they understand which technologies are available to them. Um, in this particular instance, anyway, right? In this particular instance, right. someone figured out the technology that was available to them and how to make it work for them um, so that they could, you know, create a separate industry outside of, you know, regular banking. That's, that's ingenious. But again, I couldn't have created that solution because it, that particular problem would ha, wouldn't have had been obvious to me and it wouldn't have been you know and this is some and the people who created it I'm sure weren't just thinking about it from an ethical standpoint they were thinking about it from a business mm -hmm. point of view this is a market that we're not tapping into um and there is a need for it and you know something like this comes out and people start using it 
just about anywhere. And it becomes and something that was very, very difficult to achieve is now easier because of technology. But again, that's why that's why we need diverse voices in technology. They don't always like the, the solutions don't always have to be for us. Um, we can't shy away from niche products or or, you know, catering to certain segments of the population when there are needs that we know can be solved, you know, with with a tech, you know, that, that have a technological solution and not everything does. But if it does, then that's something that's that's worth um, fighting for, I think. Yes, I totally agree. Yeah. So the last thing I wanted to talk to you about is um, I'm a technical writer um, mm -hmm. and you are taking technical writing classes. Yeah, I am. And um, that's not something I hear from a lot of people. So why did you decide to kind of go in this direction? Yeah, um, I had I would say that I had like a like an existential crisis sometime uh, around like nine months ago. Um, up when I started learning how to code in 2012, I was going into it as if I was going to be a developer. And, and my friend who was teaching me how to code, I think was kind of priming me for a career in development. My background is in strategic communications and PR, and I've always been interested in technology, but I'm more interested in communicating and in, and in consuming information and also giving people information that I think is is where um, I feel like I shine in technology. Um, but I got, I started looking for jobs as, um, as like a junior Rails developer. And I got one code challenge. And I remember trying to work through this code challenge. And that was the moment that I realized, like, like I, I mean, like, needless to say, like, there were just a whole bunch of other issues that, like, that, like, contributed to it. But I ultimately, like, what I got out of that is, like, well, you know, what is it that I really want to do? Is this really, 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 really what I want to do? Is it being a developer? And I realized that for me, there was an issue of credibility. I felt that um, unless I had that engineer or developer title, nobody was going to take me seriously in the industry. Um, I, I felt that, you know, it would have it would have meant that I wasted my time learning how to program if I couldn't end up being a developer or an engineer. So that was like something that was separate from the actual task of coding. But I realized, like, I don't actually want to be coding all day, every day. What I really enjoy is learning technology, like learning something, breaking it, figuring it out, and then like telling people how to solve it. And um, the first like thing that kind of, um, that I like, I, I learned, like I learned how to use um, a Jekyll, like a, there's a particular type of Jekyll blog called Octopress. Octopress. Mm -hmm. Yes. And, and I wanted to learn how to use Octopress so that I could get better with Git and version control. But they, I had huge issue with Octopress's documentation and um, with trying to with trying to actually get the to configure Octopress to work, and I finally figured it out. I finally figured out a hack, and I wrote a blog post about it because I couldn't find anything about it on the internet. Um, and that was the moment that I realized, you know what? Like, I actually care about well-written documentation because a lot of documentation that I see is very thin, very sparse. Um, and anytime I come across well-written documentation, I really, really appreciate it, and I feel like I can use the technology well. Um, and then I was like, well, you know, technical writing is something that I hear about, but I don't know much about it. And I read up on it and I was like, wow, this is, this is everything that I want to do. I love, first, I love teaching. Like my first job in, in tech in coding was, um, as a teaching assistant on a 10 week backend web development course. And I remember just loving, like trying to figure out how to explain things in a way that was clear and concise and that people could easily understand and also that there's a huge need for document for, for good documentation. Mm -hmm. All of us have seen bad documentation. And if you use software, there's nothing more frustrating than trying to figure something out and not having the documentation to support it. So that was when I was like, you know what, this is my calling because I'm a writer and I love writing. Writing is very integral to who I am as a person, as is technology, but I don't want to sit down and code. I actually want to be able to communicate, help and educate people. So technical writing seemed like the perfect marriage of, um, uh, me using technical skills with um, my uh, with my need to communicate and educate um, through words. So it just seemed like like I think it, it really had to do with me breaking down who I was as a person. I had to be very real with who I was, but also be true to the fact that tech, that tech was becoming a huge passion of mine um, and figuring out like, you know, where the intersection of it is. And 
I didn't think that people in the industry were going to respond, at least the people that, that um, the community that I had on Twitter, I didn't think people were going to respond very well to it because a lot of people that I followed and followed me were software developers and engineers. Mm-hmm. A lot of them I met at conferences, but people were, were super supportive about it. They thought it was really, really awesome. And the more I learned about it and, and taking the, I just finished my first course, taking it, I realized that this is exactly what I wanted to be doing now. And it just, it felt right. Congratulations. Thank you. That's I, awesome. I, I, it is awesome. I'm, I, I'm 29 and it, you know, it feels like, I feel like we all have this narrative about having your life figured out when you're 22 and then you're not mm-hmm. 22 anymore. And you're just kind of like, well, you know, what am I supposed to be doing now? Mm-hmm. And for the first time in my life, I feel like I have uh, some, I have clarity around what it is that I want to do. And it's not that I think technical writing is going to be the end goal, full stop, whatever, but I do think that it is the next step for me. And, you know, whatever happens from there is totally fine, but I have like a clear destination for now. And, and that's, and that's a great place to be. You know, the, the thing that I, um, am discovering the, the longer I'm in the industry and the longer I'm actually like using my technical writing degree because I didn't do that for quite a while is um, a lot of people don't communicate well. <laughs> you know, it yeah. is such a valuable skill. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, and it's, it's, it's crazy. I mean, just trying to figure out how to say things with the least amount of effort and words mm-hmm. possible. Like the fact that I, we look at manuals, FAQs and documentation that's well-written and it feels very seamless that takes a lot of mental effort and energy. Um, and, and just through that work and through learning more about technical writing, I've developed such a respect for technical writers um, that is like, it's very difficult to communicate things very, very simply and very succinctly. Um, and, it's, and it's something that I think if, if, you know, reading upon all the manuals and all of the, the documentation and all of the man pages and everything, it would have you believe that a technical writer was actually the person that created this technology the writing is that is that good, um, and and the technical writer understands their user that well. So um, I think it's a skill that that people need to value, and I think it's something that needs to be respected because um, they're two different things: creating a technology and being able to communicate it well to an audience. Um, and I think it's a skill that people should should value more. And and there's clearly a need for it. Um, so. Yeah. So what I was saying was touche and, and, you know, great job to you and, you know, all of the other technical writers out there, because you guys do an awesome job just making it easier for us to be able to do whatever it is that we need to do. I can say like um, it's it's a really good feeling. And if you actually pursue a career like in technical writing, there are some complex processes where I work um, and it, I, I primarily do user facing documentation. And there's like this really complicated thing I wrote, like it took me three days to write just like one knowledge base article. And I had someone go through it. And they were like, you know, I looked at this, and it was really long. And I thought it would be really hard to follow. Um, But but it was actually really easy, even though this is complicated, it was really easy. And I was like, (laughs) yes. So that's, that's a really good feeling to have. But if something if something is simple, like you're reading a technical document and it sounds simple, know that someone sweated those details <laughs> oh, for yes. days before oh, yes. they I, wrote I that. I believe that when I was doing my final project, which um, was just like five pages of like uh, documentation for Bundler, I remember just not even knowing where to start and just being like, and, and just like pouring mm-hmm. over, you know, how could I say this in a way? Is this the right way to say it? Is this the right way to say it? Um, and just like mentally, like going through my Rolodex of all of the things that I tried, that I learned in class and all the things that I was taught to look out for, um, it is, and then to, 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 you know, find that, um, that finally I was able to create a finished product. And, and, you know, that's very small compared to what technical writers have to work on, on, on a daily basis. So yeah, I hear you <laughs> and I appreciate you. <laughs> Well, I think it's so exciting. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't talk to technical writers very often. I talk to developers and, you know, it's like, they're great and yeah. I love them, but you know, it's, it's nice to have someone, you know, who understands yeah, the process. Yeah. I mean, writing, writing in general, but writing professionally is, uh, is a labor of love. Um, at my last job, I was, I was doing email marketing and there was a lot of email to write and a lot of, um, you know, having to get things right because there was always an email to be sent out. So um, I appreciate people who, 
to do that because it, it, it is a, it's a lot of work. Um, and in that, I think developers, I think that part developers and writers in general share is that, you know, trying to figure out how to say things very succinctly, how to say things um, in a way that's very clear um, and, you know, doesn't leave much room for, for doubt. So, so yeah. Well, Stephanie, we're at about an hour. Where can people find you online? I can be found on Twitter at um, Radio Morillo. That's R-A-D-I-O-M-O-R-I-L-L-O. And at StephanieMorillo.com. I'm really accessible. So feel free to tweet me whenever. Cool. Um, you can find the show on Twitter at Less Than or Equal. If you have feedback, suggestions for guests, or would like to be a guest, please go to LessThanOrEqual.com and fill out the contact form. If you have a few minutes, it'd be wonderful if you'd leave a review on iTunes or even a star rating. Thank you for listening. Until next time on an internet near you, I'm Aline Sims for Less Than or Equal.